Welcome to the Wildlife Health Talks. This is the 26th episode introducing WDA members and their amazing work all over the world. We are traveling to Malawi in East Africa today. Well, I'm reaching my guest via Zoom in Vancouver, Canada, where she is stuck in a biostatistics course at the University of British Columbia. But Malawi is the place where Dr. Hezi Enhold spends most of her time. She's originally from Canada, but found her second home in Malawi when she started working as a wildlife vet at the Lilongwe Wildlife Trust in 2017. Instead of returning home after two years, she founded her own veterinary wildlife service. Since 2021, she has also been a PhD candidate investigating the ecology of East African trypanosomiasis with a One Health approach. And another fun fact about Hezi is that she speaks four languages, including the local Malawi language, Chichewa. Welcome to the show, Hezi. Hi, Kat. It's so nice to finally meet you. This is very exciting. <laughs> Hezi, tell me, which other languages do you speak, in addition to obviously English, and how tricky was it to learn Chichewa? Well, okay, honestly, I wouldn't say that I speak Chichewa. I am very slowly learning it, and I really enjoyed the process of learning a language that doesn't share any roots with like Germanic or Latin languages, and it's really an interesting language to learn, but as an English speaker, I'm very spoiled because the languages of science and commerce and in Malawi also politics are very much English. And so it makes it really easy for an English speaker to be quite lazy. So when it comes to learning the the other languages that are spoken in Malawi. So I'm studying it, but frankly, the fact that I've been there for six years and and I'm not fluent is something that actually I'm quite feel a bit ashamed about. Oh, well, I'm sure you will get there at one point. <laughs> so yeah. I find it quite impressive. Yeah, slow, yeah, slowly. I feel like if any of my Malawian friends are listening to this, they're thinking, ah, she doesn't speak Chichewa. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess I can get by um, for, with, you know, with basic things. And then uh, I learned uh, Spanish and German as well. Yeah, very cool. We could just do this in German as well. But for the sake of our English listeners, we might not. <laughs> Let's move on to some WDA questions. When did you join the WDA? I think I joined in 2014, which was shortly after my graduation from the Western College of Vet Med in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Do you have a favorite WDA-related experience for us? Well, mostly people say that the conferences are their favorite experience, and I've wanted to go to a WDA conference in person like ever since I joined, and I haven't been able to make it work yet, but I'm pretty excited about potentially the next one. And it was like really clear to me as soon as I first discovered the WDA that this organization like really encompassed my interests in wildlife. It's always been my favorite source of wildlife health news. At this time, my favorite experience would be that the first like peer-reviewed publication that I had was in the Journal of Wildlife Diseases in 2014. So that's my favorite experience now, but I'm looking forward to going to the conference. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I hope I will meet you in person next year at the International WDA Conference in Australia. That would be awesome. You will. <laughs> 
So, yeah, moving on to your career path a little bit, because I find that super interesting, all the different things and all the different stages you had in your career. So you did a one-year internship at the Assiniboine Park Zoo in Manitoba, Canada, and you went on to work as a wildlife and research vet at the Lilongwe Wildlife Trust in Malawi. And why did you decide to move to Malawi? This was completely by chance. I think probably it's similar to many of the places that you have worked as well, because you just, you found the right job at the right time. And so that's where you went. I think we're very much an international community that's like very thinly spread across the world in terms of wildlife health and research. And when I finished my internship at Assiniboine, I was really interested in being able to investigate free-ranging wildlife health and to work with free-ranging wildlife. I was very interested in population health. So I interviewed for a number of positions. I think one was in Canada, one in Sierra Leone, one in Malawi. And I didn't get the position in Canada that was at that was with Parks Canada, but I was offered this position in Malawi. So that's where I went. And I have to say, I find it fascinating every time, right, how random things that we can't really influence change the path of our lives. Like you mentioned, you would have gotten the job in Canada. I'm sure your life would look so different now. Absolutely. It's hard to even imagine. Let's talk about Malawi itself. I feel like most of our listeners, including myself, probably have never been to Malawi and don't really have an idea what it's like to live there. Tell us about why do you love the country so much and its people and its wildlife? Like what's your favorite part about the country? There's a few things I think that make Malawi uh, my absolute favorite place to be right now. Um, I think I really love places that have exceptional biomass and biodiversity. And so Malawi being in the subtropics um, is just a brilliant example of that. Like the bird life is amazing. The herpetofauna, the gardens are just absolutely astonishing. And then not to mention, you know, the amazing megafauna that we typically associate with sub-Saharan Africa. It has all of those things. And also like one thing that I find difficult about living in urban parts of Canada is that I find uh, Canadian culture and some other like northern cultures can be a bit fussy, perhaps not very self-sufficient in places where we have like material abundance. And Malawi is like the complete opposite of this. People are extremely laid back and very self-sufficient. And I really love that about Malawian culture. And Malawi is it's called the warm heart of Africa because people there are known for being like extremely warm, laid back and welcoming of outsiders. That's awesome. And that is perfect for my next question. So tell us, how did you feel when you first arrived in your new job? Were you scared? Were you excited? And what was it like to finally becoming part of the local community there? Oh, I'm sure I must have been very excited. But I have like moved many times in my life. Cumulatively, I think I've lived and worked in perhaps 10 countries. But Malawi was a place that I very quickly found like a strong sense of community and That's the reason that I have ended up staying there for six years now, and I hope to continue to live and work there because once I sort of overcame some of the initial challenges of just learning how to move around and live in a new place, I found that a very like a very strong sense of community very quickly. And I think that that's incredibly like important for our mental health and for our quality of life. So 
<laughs> that sounds really good. And um, let's go back to your actual job for the first two years in Malawi at the Lilongwe Wildlife Trust. What did your daily work there look like? So my daily work at Lilongwe Wildlife Trust, um, for those two years, I was mostly working in the field at uh, one particular small nature reserve, and we were setting up a few wildlife health surveillance projects. So my daily work involved developing protocols and then training and supervising a number of international and also Malawian students uh, who were participating in the data collection for the health surveillance. And then sometimes I also worked as a relief veterinarian at the Wildlife Center, which does a lot of wildlife rehabilitation and release. So they had many different wildlife species under rehabilitation there. And what was your favorite part about the work there? Definitely being out in the bush, being able to learn about the animals and getting lots of sun and exercise those two years. <laughs> and what were the challenges? I think the challenges were lack of resources, for sure, and also a lack of mentorship. So uh, there wasn't anyone at the organization who was more senior in terms of like research and and wildlife health knowledge. And so that's one of the reasons that I went to do the PhD was to be able to have like more mentorship in in the research I was doing and to improve my my research skills because I felt that I was a little bit limited. While you were at the Wildlife Trust, you developed several One Health related research projects. Can you give us a few examples? Like what kind of projects did you set up? Yeah, we had one project which was looking at strongyloides in monkeys. So this is a soil transmitted helminth. And we were also looking at monkeys in areas where there was more human habitation versus less and the, the strongyloides in, in the different monkey troops. We had a surveillance project on gastrointestinal parasites of wildebeest. We had a zebra population monitoring program and also a project looking at the soft tick Ornithodorus, which is the vector for African swine fever. And we were looking at its role in African swine fever transmission in domestic pig farms and also seeing if there was any link between the African swine fever in the pig farms and perhaps wild sewids like warthogs and bush pigs. And actually, we didn't find any link. It seemed that the potential wildlife reservoir was not a significant contributing factor to the outbreaks in the pig farms. That's really good news for the wildlife, isn't it? Yes. I mean, the pigs and the farms as well, but at least no one could blame the wildlife then. Like it's often done. Yeah, at least not according to the data. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and since you already mentioned it, so since 2021, you've been enrolled in a PhD program on the ecology of East African trypanosomiasis with a One Health approach. I did practice that word, trypanosomiasis. I want to say it again because I like it so much now. Please give us a little bit of an overview. What's the current situation with this disease? which is also called sleeping sickness in people and wildlife in Malawi. So the, the situation with East African trypanosomiasis or sleeping sickness in Malawi is really epidemiologically interesting. So the East African sleeping sickness is a very acute disease. It's caused by this one subspecies of a trypanosome parasite called Trypanosoma brucei or desienzi. Uh, which is found in East and Southern Africa. And without treatment, it's considered like almost 100% fatal. And there are also other African trypanosome species which don't infect people, but which are pathogenic to domestic animals and also to some extent wildlife. 
So it is a disease that really constrains socioeconomic development in sub-Saharan Africa because it diminishes uh, human health and also livestock health. And in Malawi, there is the highest reported incidence of East African trypanosomiasis in the world. And then in 2019, cases tripled for um, unknown reasons. And so that's reported cases. So there's not a lot of epidemiological data on the disease. It's very severely underdiagnosed and it may be re-emerging. So the work that my lab is doing in Malawi, so this is the clinical research program under the Malawi Liverpool Welcome Trust. They're doing really interesting work on understanding the pathogenesis of this disease in people in Malawi and also the epidemiology of it. And um, so, Hezi, sorry, let me quickly ask. I didn't actually know that it's pretty much 100% fatal. I had no idea. I thought it was like an unpleasant one, but not not that dangerous. Uh, what's the prevalence in the among the human population? It looks like probably of the cases that present to a hospital, maybe 10 or 15% are ever diagnosed. Between 2012 and 2020, there were 315 cases that were reported in the three endemic foci of the disease in Malawi. It's a disease that people are at risk of only in specific areas where the disease vector is found. So it has an, a very interesting distribution where there are like hotspots of disease transmission. So people in those areas can be at quite high risk of contracting the disease. Whereas the the overall incidence, if you look at an entire country, uh, may not appear to be very high. So it's a disease that very much affects people in rural, remote areas that are close to conservation areas. What I also find really cool about your PhD is that you're planning to have a strong social science aspect to, us, as, to it as well. So one of the goals of your PhD is to investigate the knowledge and practices of local people towards the CC flies, the vectors of the disease. I know you're only at the beginning of this aspect of your PhD, but maybe you can give us a little preview. Is sleeping sickness something that the locals fear and try to avoid, or what is their general attitude towards it? In my personal experience with some of the surveillance work that I have done so far, is that people who are living in sleeping sickness endemic areas, they are certainly aware of the disease and they know um, that it's transmitted by tsetse flies. They also know that some form of the disease can also affect their livestock. But despite this, the disease is still very underdiagnosed in people. So probably less than 15% of the cases which are presenting to a medical facility would be diagnosed. And this is something that my Malawian colleagues at Malawi Liverpool Welcome Trust are working. But what local people are doing to mitigate the risk of sleeping sickness or to avoid tsetse flies, this is something that I don't understand very well and something that would be uh, really important to understand in the context of my research project. So I'm looking forward to starting the qualitative aspect of my thesis next year. And I'm really lucky that the Malawi Liverpool Welcome Trust that I work with, they have quite a few research technicians who have experience with focus group discussions and conducting qualitative research. So there are there are many people that I can work with who have quite a bit of expertise in this. I'm very excited to learn about your results when you get to it. We already briefly talked about that you set up your own wildlife vet business. What kind of work do you do in the capacity of this business? 
my wildlife veterinary services business in Malawi, it's very small, but I am able to provide some services to ranches and private game reserves. Like maybe I might go out to remove a snare from an animal or in cases I've done, like I've undertaken disease outbreak investigation. I've done quite a lot of animal relocations or translocations. So a translocation would be you're moving some animals to a, a new location to augment an existing population or to establish a population. Whereas a relocation would simply be bringing an animal to a new location. Let's say someone sold some animals to you know a different a different park for some genetic exchange, or maybe an animal left a reserve and is in like a high conflict area and needs to be brought back. I've done all of those things sort of on a small scale with, with my little business, or in some cases I've been able to volunteer with other organizations that have been conducting like much larger projects. How easy or difficult is it to make a living as a wildlife vet in Malawi? I think almost impossible. <laughs> like some of the favorite work that I do is in Malawi's national parks. And it's work that I'm very privileged to be able to be involved in even just as a volunteer. A lot of the work that I do privately, it's not it's not full time, but I really enjoy being able to get out and do it when it when it comes up. I think from what I've experienced and what I've seen other people doing, it seems that perhaps the only way to make it work is you do need some some income that's coming in from outside the country, whether that be for a research grant or money from an NGO, something like that. But I'm not sure that it's a sustainable like full-time business as a, as a for-profit venture. At least I haven't been able to make it work that way. <laughs> it's kind of a kind of an ironic situation that your PhD might bring you more income than your actual vet business, right? Which is pretty unique in the world, I guess. Oh, definitely. Yes. That, that's one of the reasons I pursued the PhD. Yeah. And yes, and I've, my finances have been a lot more stable since I started the PhD because I was able to apply for, you know, for grants that weren't accessible to me when I wasn't associated with a university. Yeah. <laughs> and it is a bit sad, but it's also a bit ironic. And I feel like that might be good to know for a lot of PhD students out there in the world who complain about their tiny salary. Like <laughs> For you, it's a lifesaver. So. <laughs> Yeah, and also cost of living in Malawi is lower, so that of helps course. a lot of people <laughs> yeah, when I'm able to be there. Sometimes I sort of think as my work as a wildlife vet as just being like this really expensive and all-consuming hobby. <laughs> I love that. It's a super fun hobby, I'm sure, so I totally understand that. Before we finish up, I have a, say, a bit sensitive question for you, or it's a it's a sensitive topic, but I feel like it's it's still important to to talk about it. So you are you're a white person with European descent in a African country, and you do the wildlife vet and research work there. How much like how much do you experience that this might be generally a problem, like, of course, not you personally working there, but like white, well-educated people doing the jobs that maybe locals should do. Or again, I even struggle with phrasing the question because it is such a sensitive topic. But yeah, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you perceive this issue, which could also be called neocolonialism, right? Not that you doing that, but you live in that situation. Yeah, I definitely 
feel that I I live and work in that space. And in my experience anyway, I think that colonialism or neocolonialism is a big problem in conservation. That's definitely my perception. When I work in Malawi and when I've worked in, you know, other countries as well that in the past were colonized by by European powers. I think I'm actually, I've been the benefactor of like a lot of white privilege. So I haven't found that it's difficult as a white person to work as a veterinarian in Malawi. I've actually found that I've been the recipient of a lot of privilege. I was able to immigrate to Malawi and work as a vet there because I had like some very specific technical skills and education that were very uncommon um, in the country. So I was able to fill a niche. But one really cool thing is that even in like the six years that I've been there, I've seen that changing. And in terms of the veterinary field, for example, there was a vet school that was started by the Malawian government in Malawi in 2014. And we've had a few cohorts now that have graduated. And we currently have like the first Malawian national wildlife veterinarian. His name's Lastin Chimarito, and he's wonderful to work with. He's yeah, like the first Malawian uh, wildlife vet, I think is fair to say. And there's another Malawian veterinarian who just recently graduated, and she is also very interested in wildlife and conservation and is currently actually working full time in wildlife and getting training to become a wildlife vet. So I think that, yeah, it's changing and it is really cool to be able to see that shift taking place. But that dynamic is something that I think you're constantly aware of. And it can be uncomfortable at times. But I think that if we're not, you know, if we're not uncomfortable, then there's something wrong, right? It's, <laughs> of course, it's it's uncomfortable, right? Like there's this whole historical legacy that we're all just living with and trying to navigate. And of course, this isn't just historical, this is a dynamic that's ongoing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I have one last question for you. What are your goals for your PhD and for your wildlife vet services work for the future? So I think now my goal for my PhD, I mean, first of all, it's to improve my research skills, to get better at grant writing, and to learn advanced data analysis. And the the PhD program has been really great in that regard. So I'm really happy with the way that that actually is working out. And my supervisor at UBC, it's Dr. Chelsea Hemsworth, and she's been a really phenomenal source of mentorship and support for me. So I am like learning the things that I was looking for in terms of pursuing graduate studies. And hopefully I will be able to provide some information on the role of different wildlife populations in the amplification or dilution of sleeping sickness uh, spillover risk to people in Malawi. That's the like the goal of of my thesis project. So, of course, as a PhD student, you're always like worried. Like, oh God, I'm like not collecting the right data. I'm not collecting enough data. This is a disaster. But hopefully, I can hopefully I can meet some of those research goals. It sounds uh, like you're experiencing very normal suffering of a PhD student. Sounds all very normal. You're on a good path. <laughs> that's what I hear. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, in the future, like after my PhD, so like in 2046, I'm kidding. <laughs> but in the future, like when I have uh, concluded my PhD, I would love to be able to stay in Malawi and also earn foreign currency to bring it into Malawi, maybe doing data analysis, but also living in Malawi and continuing to serve the community in Malawi as a wildlife vet. There are a lot of really interesting projects to be involved in in Malawi. I mean, I already like feel like I don't focus enough on my trypanosome research because 
I also have like all these other interests in, you know, in rabies epidemiology and pangolin pathology and ecology and crocodile health. I mean, there's just like so many things that like there's a there's just there's a ton of projects and a ton of work. There just isn't really any money. So so that's the challenge that I I need to meet, whether it's finding funding and being able to bring in grants or perhaps just making money doing data analysis remotely. But we'll see. Yeah, we'll see what happens. It's like, as you said, these chance circumstances lead to, you know, career paths that you would not necessarily anticipate. So I guess we will see what happens in the future. That sounds great. Well, I wish you all the best. And it looks like you're going into a very good direction for that. So thanks so much for being my guest on the show and really enjoyed speaking with you, Hezi. Thank you so much, Kat. Thanks for listening to the Wildlife Health Talks. We will be back with a new story in two weeks. 